have your Bible tonight, and you would find in the Old Testament, uh, the book of Habakkuk. And uh, we are almost done with the minor prophets. After tonight, there are just four more minor prophets. Uh, Tonight, uh, the book of Habakkuk is unlike um, really anything we see in the Word of God. Uh, We see many of the books of the Old Testament. They're very historical. They tell you about the reign of King David. They tell you about the reign of King Josiah. You have books like Psalms and Proverbs that are collections of wisdom and knowledge and songs. You move into the New Testament and you see the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We see the epistles written by Paul. and You see James and John. But yet the book of Habakkuk is not directed at the children of Israel. It's not like the book of Jonah where he is being sent to a rebellious people. It is a book where a great man of God, a man of God who loved God, who was wanting the presence and glory of God, and it was his conversation to the Lord. It was his conversation in honesty that we see that all of us can struggle in understanding and knowing the why of God's plans. This time in the nation of Israel, we're not sure exactly what the date would be, but most likely um, the kingdom had just, uh, if you've read in the Old Testament about them finding the book of the law, uh, the nation through the godly king uh, turns back to the Lord for a short season, but he is killed in a battle, and yet his descendants, about three of them, become on the scene and are extremely wicked. And so if you're Habakkuk and you had watched the nation that was running from God in the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom was gone. They had been conquered by the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom experiences this brief revival. And and it seems like things are going to be turned around. And then death and destruction. And as the nation plunges back into its sin... Habakkuk comes to God and says, I do not understand what is happening. Why did you give us that brief minute of hope for us just to turn back to the idolatry and wickedness that we were? Now, the title of the sermon tonight is Worship Overcomes. And you say, what are the question marks for? It's blank. It's for you to fill in. Tonight you say, Jake, my greatest fear that I am struggling with is whatever it is. Worship overcomes that. Maybe tonight you're struggling with doubt. Worship overcomes that. Maybe you're struggling with idolatry or lust or whatever it is tonight, complacency. Worship overcomes that. Because as we look at chapters 1 and 2, and we're going to be very brief in those, because it's him asking God a question, God responds. He gets an answer that he doesn't really like, and so he's like, um, can you clarify that for me? And then God answers him again, and in chapter 3, it is all about, okay, I don't understand, I'm not even sure I agree, but God, I'm going to worship you. God, I'm going to worship you because that is the answer to my problem. That is the answer to my fear. That is the answer to my doubt. 
That is the answer to my hurting. That is the answer to my brokenness. And whatever it is tonight you come with, whether you can convince yourself there are no problems, there are no struggles. Friends, if there is not a burden in your life for someone, you are self-centered and selfish. You should be worried about your grandchildren and your children, not in the sense of I'm afraid and I'm terrified, but I have a burden for them. I have three children that are not yet saved. They're not quite old enough. There are a lot of discussions at our house, but I want them to be saved. I'm going to have, if the Lord tarries, and I hope that He does not, six hairy-legged fools try to walk down the aisle with my daughters. It matters. It matters. I know what a life of joy can come from a marriage, and I've been enough around enough other people to know the miseries that can come from it. And so it matters. I've seen families tore apart because a grandparent can't see their grandchildren. I've seen it tore apart when families go through the heartache and the pain. And so if you're here tonight and you're carefree, friends, there's a problem. You ought to care enough to run to Him. You ought to care enough to weep and pray and seek the Lord's face. And so chapter 3 is all about Habakkuk telling us this is what real worship looks like. And if you want to overcome whatever you're going through, this is the formula to follow. And so if you would, pray with me and we'll get started. Father, tonight I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for your abundance of blessings. But Lord, never let us go complacent. Never let us think that enough is enough when it comes to you working with us. Lord, we should always want to see more people saved. We should always want to see more people healed. We should always want to see more glory given to you than what we have. And so, Father, I ask tonight that you would speak and not me. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read with you verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. It starts in verse 1. It says, The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. He just starts out by telling you he is concerned, he is burdened, he is overwhelmed. This isn't like, oh, I wonder what we're going to have for supper tonight. Maybe, I don't know. No, this man is saying, I don't understand how the wicked keep winning. I don't understand how the wicked in this own country get away with what they're getting away with. He says, I don't understand why the right seems wrong and the wrong seems right. And so he just asked the Lord in verses 2 through 4, O Lord, how long shall I cry? And you will not hear. Even cry out to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgments proceed. He says, I'm just telling you God what it's like down here. I want to tell you how broken and messed up and difficult things are. And I just feel like you're not listening. Now, this is honest. Now, I don't know if he knew that this was going to go in the Scriptures when he was praying this with God, but in chapter 3, when God says, I want you to write this down, I would have went, oh, no. 
Lord, I, this was between me and you. <laughs> this was my heart. This was my cry. This was my burden. And, and now you want me to write it down? You want me to write it down and throw it away, right? And we know that, no, we now have it as Scripture. The inspired and errant, infallible Word of God. And so we know it wasn't wrong to ask. We know it wasn't wrong to struggle. We, wasn't, we know it's not wrong to, to wonder why. And so that's his question. And the Lord looks at him in verses 5 through the end of this chapter, or verse 11, excuse me, and he says, you're right. I see the wickedness of Israel, Judah. I see the wickedness of the Assyrians, and I have an answer. I am getting ready to raise up somebody who's even worse than them. And that army is going to come and is going to attack the Assyrians and wipe them out. You can read it here, and I won't read it for the sake of time because I'm really enjoying these short sermons. And God's people said, hey, jerks. No, I'm just kidding. In verse 9 it says, They all come for violence. Their faces are set like an east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold. For they heap up earth and mounds and sieve it. Then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offenses ascribing this power to his God. He says, I'm going to raise up a group of people that are more wicked, more evil, more powerful, more vicious than the people you're upset with. And Habakkuk says, I have another question. That's as honest as we can be. And you're saying, well, that, I, I know how this ends up, so it's okay. You're absolutely right. We know that Babylon destroys Nineveh, that Babylon destroys the southern kingdom. They serve for uh, 70 years in captivity. Then they come home and God bless them. But if you're Habakkuk, you don't know that. All you see is the mess that you're in. The hopelessness that you're facing. And you're saying, God, I don't understand why. And God says, it's going to get worse. Now most of you, as I can see it on your face, I'm okay with that. You lie. Because we're not. Habakkuk shows us what it really means to be human, to be sinful, to be fallen. And he just says, and I want to read it to you, starting in verse 12. Are you not the everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of a purer eye than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? He says, God, but you're perfect. Lord, there is no wickedness in you. He is asking a same question that you will hear atheists say all the time. How can a good, loving, perfect God let so much evil exist in the world? How could I lose my loved one then they were a better person than so-and-so? How could my family member beat cancer and then get hit by a car? How could a child die in the womb who had done none wrong? 
Why did that person lose their job and go into depression and commit suicide when they were the best worker that the company had? That's the setting that we see. Now, a lot of Bible commentators will try to make this not look like this. They try to doll it up, and, but it's not. It's real, it's honest, it's broken, and he says, I just don't understand how you, God, are okay with this. How you can use someone as wicked as the Babylonians. Someone as wicked as we'll know as King Nebuchadnezzar and his father. How can you do that, God? In chapter 2, we see the Lord answered. You see, I always get a kick out of that. God doesn't want you to know what His plans are for your life or God tries to hide Himself. No. If you will draw near to Him, the Bible promises you that He will what? He will draw near to you. He tells us that if you will seek Him, you will find Him. And so he starts here in verses 2 through 4 and says, Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision. Oh, You want me to write your part, God, right? Not my part. We'll write your words, not mine. And make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the time it will speak, and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. That probably sounds familiar because the Apostle Paul quotes it. The just shall live by faith. It is teaching us here that you have to put your faith and trust in Him. It's not your works. It's not your effort. It's not your goodness. It's Him. If you want to be a true child of God, it is by faith, not of works. It is by the grace of God. And so you and I must understand that, that my faith that God has given me, that I am exercising, it is about Him. And he goes on in verses 5 through the end of this chapter, and he says, okay, I want you to know something. These people are going to get theirs. I I am not going to let it go unpunished, but sometimes I use wicked to destroy wicked. And why is that? Because that's human nature. You look in the days of the Assyrian Empire, it grew great, it grew strong. The Babylonians rose up to conquer it. The Babylonian Empire was strong for a while, and then the, uh, the Persian Empire rises and destroys. After that, you see the Greeks and the Romans, and it just continues on. There are always going to be wicked and powerful people, whether it's in government, whether it's in church, whether it's at work. The cycle of violence and corruption and evil is built into the sinful nature of humankind. And God says, I'm going to use it until that day that I make everything perfect. It doesn't mean that God likes it. It doesn't mean that God created it. But when you and I fell in our sin because of Adam and Eve, it plunged everything into sin. There is no world peace achievable without Jesus destroying His enemies. There's no end to the problems of this world. And so when he goes on in verse 5, he says, but I want to tell you why these wicked nations are going to get what they've got coming to them. 
You say, man, Jake, this is a long introduction. Yes, and a short sermon, hopefully. The first one is laid out in verses 6 through 8. And I won't read them for the sake of time, but it's greed. The nations have become greedy. They have plundered other nations. They have shed the blood of others for wealth. A nation that decides it must have more and devalues human life, God says, judgment's coming. It goes on there in verses 9 through 11, and he talks about exploiting people, taking advantage of the poor, charging interest rates that are astronomical to keep people in poverty and in brokenness. The third one there in verses 12 through 14 is just crimes against humanity. The bloodshed, the violence, the destroying people. God says that wickedness will be punished. Verses 15 through 17 is drunkenness. He says this group of leaders and this group of wealthy people and and powerful people drink and party and celebrate while they run the world into the ground. And then the last one he says in verses 18 through 20 is idolatry. He says, idolatry. And he says, I see the sins of these people and they're going to get theirs. But what he says to Habakkuk is, you don't get to decide when. I choose to judge. You you don't get to tell me when I stop showing mercy. You don't understand how I might be raising up an enemy to destroy another enemy. God does not condone sin. God does not approve sin. God does not make us sin. But God will allow sin to happen to accomplish His purposes. That's why the Bible says the gospel is either what is saving you or is a stumbling block. You cannot get around it. It's either convicting you to the point where you want to be saved or it is making you hate God. Hate the things of God. Friends, you should never want a church that lost people are comfortable listening to the sermon. You should want them to hear they need to be saved. They need the gospel. They are enemies of God. They are loved by God. There is a place called hell. If they do not repent and turn and experience the love and mercy of God, friends, that is the hope that they need. You say, well, Jake, win them over with sermons on parenting. I'll preach on parenting. I'm not very good at it, but I'll preach on it. They need sermons on marriage. You're absolutely right. We need sermons on marriage. Jake, people need sermons on managing your money. You're absolutely right. But friends, this is not a place to make broken people better. This is a place where dead people can be made alive. We have a gospel that can take the blind and give them sight. To take those who are crippled and can make them well. The gospel does not improve you. It completely transforms you. It makes you into a new creation. And the church must never lose that. As much as we help, as much as we care, as much as we love, people are in need of saving. They are in need of a relationship with Jesus. And so Habakkuk gets this answer, and then what does he do? Chapter 3 is here. Very quickly, write these down if you would. He shows us how to worship. If you want to know how to get over depression, discouragement, anger, bitterness, it all comes down to worship. It comes down to worship. In verses 1 here it says, the prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet on Shigonoth. What we see here is that prayer is an element of worship. 
We know that if you look at the end of this, this was a song. This was turned down into a song that the Jewish people would sing, would worship God. And so we know that it is a prayer. We know that we should sing as we come to worship. We know the New Testament tells us that we are to preach the Word. We know that the Bible tells us that we're to bring our tithes and offerings. And so what we see here is a blueprint for how to worship. Worship is not how you want or how I want. God wants to be worshipped His way. And what He says is, you better be a people of prayer because my house will be called a house of prayer. God says, I want to hear you sing my praises and worship me and honor me. The, The Bible tells us that God wants the preaching and declaration of His Word. The Bible tells us that we are to give and to be cheerful givers. And so we see here that He is telling us, all right, we need to worship and this is how we should do it. The second thing we see from this passage of Scripture is the heart and the attitude of our worship. Look at verse 2. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. We come humbly. He says, God, remember us. He says, God, I am fearful of you. And that word for fearful is reverent, not terrified as in punishment. But God, I am in awe of you. It means when you come to worship, you have to come with an attitude of respect that you're not doing God a favor by showing up here. That you're not just gracing 10 miles with your presence. No, friends, when you come in here, you come to worship because God's been good to you. God's taken care of you. God's provided for you. Without God, you would have nothing. Without God, you would have no hope. Without God, you'd have no salvation. Without God, you'd have no blessings. Without God, you would not have a mansion in heaven, but you would have an eternal home in hell. You come knowing that, God, you've been good to me. God, I'm coming for your sake to worship you, to honor you, to celebrate you. God, I I can't imagine what I'd be like without you. Friends, if that's how we came, just imagine how different it would be. How much different we could see. But he says you've got to come with the right heart. You see, all throughout the Bible, people were going through the motions. They were doing things for the right, right way, the wrong reasons. And what Habakkuk says is you've got to come with the right heart. You've got to be willing to get along with God and say, Lord, I'm here to worship you for no other reason. The third thing we see from this is who do we focus on when we worship? You say, we worship on God. We worship on who Jesus is. You're right. But do you really know what He's like? Do you really know who God is? Do you know that we serve a God who is compassionate and merciful? But He's also holy. And He says, for I am holy, you be holy. If you want to be forgive, you have to forgive. And so he starts out here in verses 3 all the way through 15, and he just says, God, this is who you are, and this is who I'm going to praise. God came from Timan, the Holy One, from the Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from His hand, and there His power was hidden. Before Him went pestilence, and fever followed at His feet. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations, and everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. 
I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian trembled. These are the places where the Ninevite leaders ran to as the Babylonians just kept chasing them and destroying them. O Lord, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows, Selah. You divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hand on high. The sun and moon stood still in its habitation. At the light of your arrows they went. At the shining of your glittering spear. You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people. For salvation with your anointed. Probably a reference to the coming of Jesus destroying his enemies. But we're not sure. You struck the head of the house of the wicked. By laying bare from foundation to neck. Silah. You thrust through with your open arrows the head of his villages. They came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was feasting on the poor in secret. So he says, God, you show up and you conquer everything. Why? Because God, you created everything. God, you're in charge of everything. God, you can do what you want, how you want, when you want. There's no enemy that can stand against you. There's no foe that can overcome you. There's no problem that you can't defeat. There's no crooked path you can't make straight. There's no deep valley that you can't put land in. There's nothing, God, that you can't do. And that's the God that you come to serve. That's the God that you come to worship. Not a weak, pathetic preacher up here shouting and screaming, but the God who hung the stars in the sky. The God who created everything out of nothing. The God who controls the sea and the ocean. The God who is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our praise. And what Habakkuk says is, Lord, you're going to get praise, whether it's through blessing or whether it's through us watching your power destroy your enemies. Now, you have probably all watched the television at different times in the United States history and watched different military campaigns. I can remember um, watching footage of, of uh, missiles being launched off of ships into different areas and bombs being dropped. And you watch that and you think, oh, that's horrible. That's horrible for the people that are receiving, but the power that is behind it and the purpose that is behind it, it is heartbreaking for those on the other end of that, but it is a display of the might of the United States military. Friends, I want you to know something. The United States military, the greatest fighting force in the world, should be supported, prayed for, uh, encouraged in every way, is nothing compared to the power and might and armies of the Lord. And what he says is you better buck up and wake up and realize when God chooses to move, he does not move as a one-legged man in a butt-kicking contest. I got to use that twice today. He comes in all power and all authority. And when we pray as a church, seeking the Lord's direction, seeking where we are to go, seeking what we are to accomplish, we come to the throne boldly expecting the power and authority of God to be involved, not coming begging for the scraps off God's table. No, we come knowing that we are a child of the King. We sit at the table. We have access to the throne. And if you earthly parents know how to give your children good gifts... God says, oh, how much more I know how to give those that love me. 
That's how we pray. That's how we worship. But let's be honest. We come in and we watch too much news. We've read too much Facebook. We've got too many problems. And we come in defeated, worshiping a God that's going to let us be defeated. We're in the same boat as Habakkuk most Sundays. And friends, what Habakkuk says, if you want to turn that frown upside down, you better start worshiping. You better turn your focus to Him, to what He can do. And then we actually get to see the results of what worship will do. Not, not just how to, or what we're supposed to be like, or who God... He even tells us, this is what's going to happen. These are the results of worship in verses 16 through 19. When I heard my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones and I trembled in myself that I may rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. He starts to have fear for those people. And then he remembers something, that he is not one of them people. He is one of his people. Through the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruits beyond the vines. Though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food. Though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, he says, God might wipe everything out. Might take down every enemy. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. And you say, well, why is that? Well, verse 19 sums it all up. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and He will make me walk on my high heels. What he said, not high heels, I said you know, high hills, okay? You're saying, I'm not wearing high heels. I got you, brothers. I'm not going that direction either. I can still remember which bathroom to use at this point, all right? Verse 19, don't miss that. He says, when everything falls apart around you, when you don't know why, remember, He's enough. The Lord is enough. If you lose everything and you still have Him, it's enough. I hope you're not in a place tonight where you're saying, Jake, I've lost everything. But one day you might be. I hope tonight you're not here and you're saying, Jake, I have been hurt and wronged and betrayed and I just can't get over it. But someday you might be. Jay, I can't believe the kids that I've raised have turned out the way that they have. I just don't understand. Maybe that's not where you are, but maybe someday you will be. You remember the Lord is your strength. Not a preacher, not a church. The Lord is your strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. Well, if you know anything about deer, they can either be some of the most agile, evasive animals in the world when you are trying to hunt them, but when it seems they are out of season and you are driving in your car, they are attracted to you. What it's saying is God will provide a way for you to avoid the danger. You will be able to avoid the threat. He says, God is your strength, but I'll also provide what you need to endure. I think that's important because most of us want the strength, but we want to know how he's going to do it. And he says, I'll, I'll give you the details later. But then in verse 19, it finishes and says, and he will make me walk on my high heels. And what he says this is an idea that when there's danger 
and there is a threat, in that day and age you would go to a high point. You would retreat to Jerusalem, for instance, a city on a hill, a a city that was greatly defensible. You would get a military position up on a hill to see your enemies coming. Basic military strategy up until the modern days of warfare. Right, you can read about it in the Civil War and different conflicts. The, those that were on the hill and those marching up the hill and the slaughter that it was taking. He says, I am your strength. I'll give you what you need and I'll put you in a place that you were safe. That you were on guard. And he says, Habakkuk, you might not have all the details. But no, when it all seems to fall apart, worship me. You say, what does that look like for me? I'll be done. I'm not going to read them. I'm just going to reference them. You can write them down and go read them later. John 4, verse 23 and 24, Jesus said, If you want to worship me, you've got to worship me in spirit and in truth. Friends, I can't can't deal with the spirit in you. I can only let the spirit deal with me. If you're coming to church and getting nothing out of worship, it could be me, but it's most likely probably you. When I come to church and get nothing out of worship, guess who it's on? Me. You say, Jake, I don't want to take ownership for that. Well, suck it up, buttercup, because that's the truth. My responsibility is to give you the truth, to hear the Word of God, to preach the Word of God. But you and the Spirit, that's a you issue. My issue is not to quench the Spirit so that it affects all of us, absolutely, but we must worship Him in spirit and truth. Second thing we need to be reminded is what 2 Timothy says in 4 verses 1 through 5. We need the Word. We need to hear the Word. We need to study the Word. We need to be preached to. And then the last one, and this is always my favorite. I always enjoy the comments and messages I get after that. From Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. If you want worship to change your situation, you need to be doing it often. Often. That's why Hebrews 19, verses 19 through 25 says, One, draw near to Him. Then it says, draw near to each other. And then it says, as things get worse and as the day of the Lord is closer, you ought to do it more often. Often. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, it's out there on the stone out front. You say, well, Jake, I just don't believe the church ought to meet more often. You are against the Word of God. And what that does to you and your family is on you, not on me. As long as I'm here, I'm going to be standing here on Sunday night preaching the Word of God. As long as I'm here, I'll be standing here on Wednesday night in the back teaching the Word of God. Lord willing, I'll be standing here on Sunday morning preaching the Word of God. Why? Because God knows we need more worship, not less. I'm not against Sunday school. I'm not against fellowship. I'm not against service. I'm not against all of those things. But we need worship. Real, honest God-fearing worship to carry us through the valleys and the storms and difficulties of life. And until we get back to that heart, that back to that teaching, back to that hammering home with our own kids, friends, nothing is going to change. But it could. And my prayer tonight is that it will start here, right in this pulpit with this man and his family. And then it will start in your family your home, and we will see the Lord work in a beautiful and mighty way. Father, we thank you so much for your word tonight. Lord, you know that it, it's not my book, it's yours. And I thank you for it. I thank you, Lord, for when I even begin to waver, to doubt, to fear, 
Lord, that you just show us your truth. Lord, tonight I pray that you would show this congregation who you are. Lord, don't let them see the faults of the preacher. Don't let them see the shortcomings of the messenger. Lord, let them see you tonight and the truth and hope of your word. Lord, remind us that the situations that we're in don't have to stay that way. The valleys, the difficulties, the storms, God, that you are in the midst of them. We need to turn to you. Father, tonight I pray, though, that if there's anyone in this place that doesn't know you, that tonight would be that night. Through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, through your drawing and working, Lord, that they would come to know you. But Lord, tonight I pray that this congregation would get alone with you, honest with you, and truly seek you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And watch what you can do. Lord, I give you all the praise and the thanks, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.